Welcome, listeners, to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Thought I get and get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream from that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's abibitumi.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to your device. And in that TuneIn uh, search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening. I also have a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things placed in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here on this so cold Sunday evening in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Tonight, a special guest will be joining us, activist, author, and professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Leonard and Moore will be joining us. The conversation will center around his book, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 1972. It ought to be an interesting conversation with Professor Moore uh, as you know, if you've been a listener to this program, me, <clears throat> myself and Brother Richard talk about uh, these things centered around those events and events of our past quite a bit. So this ought to be an interesting follow-up conversation with Professor Leonard Moore. And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. 
Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship 
of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, it's 712 here in the city of Philadelphia. And before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activists and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard, how are you, sir? Forward to our conversation with Professor Moore is like, you know, this is something that we've been working on for a while and, and uh, you know, trying to get clarity and understanding of, of, of just how our politics, our politics work. And, and I think, and you know, I've always been bringing up this period seems to be um, central um, to what's what we see now. So I'm, I'm glad that um, Professor Moore is with us. You know, Richard, we, we, uh, we've had countless programs on the political cons- conventions, especially the ones in the 1900s, uh, different state, local, and uh, uh, even national conventions that we had during that period. Uh, but going into the 20th century, that political convention of 72 was key. And uh, it might have been the only national one that we had during that period of the uh, 1900s. Um, that we'll find out a little more about that when we talk to Professor Moore. But, uh, Richard, listen, unless you look at that convention and see the things that happen, you can't really understand black politicians presently if you don't have any background on what's what's really going on. I, I think this book is really interesting and key. If our audience haven't gotten a copy of it, Try to get a copy of it and, and uh, take your time and read it. Let it sink in. Read it again. Because that way you won't be disillusioned necessarily. I, I, I think you'll be disillusioned in principle. But you won't be disillusioned in some of the behavior of some of our representatives that, that uh, claim to represent the interest of black people. Uh, let's talk with our guests and, and uh, try to delve into this topic a little bit more. Activist, author, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Leonard and Moore is with us. Professor Moore, how are you, sir? Brother, thank you all so much, man. Thanks for thanks for having me, man. And thank glad we finally got uh we could we could we could find a time and date that worked for everybody. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, that uh that weather kind of threw a monkey wrench in, in a couple of weeks ago, man. Uh, how's yeah, things down there in Texas? How are things now? Yeah. I mean Good, just, I, I assume you know, your water and power people, you know the the, the politics are crazy, uh, but I tell every black person, I know the economy is good. So some of what you hear from our politicians is a lot of posturing, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, despite, you know, some of the things that come up, I think, I think Texas is a good place for black folk to be. Now, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. You know what I'm telling my folk, you know, we've been trying to find out what to do in Cleveland since the factories closed. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, the power and the water and everything is kind of back to normal or, yeah, we're good. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Everything is everything is back rolling now. So thank you for asking, Professor Moore. Um, this subject uh, in your book, "The Defeat of Black Power: Civil Rights and the National Black Political Convention of 1972," is a, I think it's a 
key time to talk about uh, myself and brother Richard talk about this a lot. Like, like I stated earlier. Um, but before we get into that, um, your prior books, you, you wrote one in 2002, uh, black, um, Carl Stokes, the rise of black political power. And then in 2010, you wrote black rage in new Orleans, black activism from world war two to Katrina. Did that lead you to write this? What, what kind of, what was the impetus in you writing this particular book about 72 convention? I should have actually wrote the, the, the 72 convention book second. That's what I should have done. <laughs> you know I mean? That's, that was sort of a natural progression out of the Stokes book, you know, Stokes being the first black mayor of a major city, Stokes sort of ushers in this black political culture. And in many ways, during those three or four years in Cleveland, he really defined what a black mayor should be. And so in many ways, the 72 book should have came after that. But I was living in Louisiana and teaching at LSU at the time, uh, the Booker. And, you know, every time I, I picked up a newspaper with some kind of some case of police brutality in New Orleans, you know, so I just I just dug into that and I just wanted to see, man, how far has this police brutality stuff go? How you know how how far did it stretch back? You know, brother, I got affidavits from black folk in New Orleans from the 1880s and 1890s, mm. writing to the mayor's office in New Orleans. I got that stuff up in my attic, man. So that was a book I couldn't get away from. And wherever I teach and wherever I live, brother, I always want to leave the people with 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 some nugget of their history that they haven't gotten. You know, it, it always fascinated me about the, the research that goes into a lot of the books that uh, that a lot of authors write. Uh, you know, I kind of love history. So that research to me really fascinates me. I remember I was looking for some of my family history. And um, this was before a lot of the stuff was on where you can kind of do it from your desktop computer. And I had to go down to the archives in, in my city here and kind of do a lot of searching. And it was fascinating, some of the stuff that you would find, the letters written, the, the stuff about your ancestors. That it, It's just, it, that type of work yeah. is fascinating to me. So when you say it, something about you had affidavits from the 1800s, I, I, I can imagine you getting your hands on those things. It's, it's really and, and I'll say this, man, you know, our oppressor keeps good records. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And they letting out more and more now for whatever reason, you know, Absolutely. Least, you know, um, where before we, you would never know. Absolutely. Professor, Professor Moore, talk, talk about the, um, because you said you should have wrote that book second. Yeah. D d just to give us a little background on, on the book itself. And okay. because, you know, it, it's seven chapters in the book. Um, to me, the first and the seventh is the really the, the the most riveting to me. This this book could be almost like a novel, uh, because <laughs> it's intrigue, it's uh, deception. I, it's it's almost like you're reading Tom Clancy or something. Yeah. It, it, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm not I, you know I'm kind of yeah. throwing in a joke, but I'm serious. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I mean, we need a movie about the book. That's what we need. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, man. I guess I guess I came to it because I always knew that black people that we were not monolithic in our thinking politically. You know, um, you can go to any black family gathering for Thanksgiving, and you can you can you, you can hear a wide range of opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, and so for me, man. I mean, I think the conference. You know, just to give you readers some context. You know, King dies and is, is murdered in 1968. And although all the activists, everybody didn't agree with his necessarily his philosophy, 
they all respected him. So while King is still living, he is able to keep the movement in many ways together, all right? Um, but when he dies in 68, you see this splintering of the movement between black nationalists on one side, right? And I would say black elected officials on the other side. You know, those that prefer to make change within the system versus those that they don't think the system can be reformed, okay? And so we got to remember now the Congressional Black Caucus is formed 1968-1969. So you got 10, 11, 12 African-American Congress people in Congress. Um, 68 is also critical because uh, congressional redistricting is taking place, and that is what allows some of these black politicians to be elected from pretty much gerrymandered all-black districts. And so 72 is critical. Nix is in, in office. He had been acting crazy. But 72 is also pivotal because um, this is the first time that the black community nationwide would see the full effect of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Now, this is important, okay? Once that Voting Rights Act is passed in 65, you know, it takes some years for things to get moving. And by 1972, all right, you have a large amount of African-Americans who are now uh, in, in, in the voting process who were not in it four years before. Mm-hmm. So 72 is, is, is a very critical year. And so I would say, man, you, you know, you have this sort of division between nationalists and I would say, you know, um, uh, these black elected officials. Uh, the black elected official point of view was that, hey, you know, we have made the transition from protest to politics. We can't stay in the street all day. We got to get hold of the political apparatus. So they believed in many ways that black people holding elective office was the next phase of the black freedom struggle. Nationalists, on the other hand, felt that the system was corrupt and that no matter if somebody was black and white, they would not be able to reform what they call a system that was inherently racist and inherently against black folks. All right. So that is sort of the sort of the context for the for the convention in 1972. No, I want to stop there, man, because I can just go. But I want to stop when you got more questions as we, as we move on. Now, now, now planning for the, yes. the conferences, because uh, Adam Clinton Powell had a, a planning conference in 1966. Mm-hmm. And it was one in Newark in 67. I Absolutely. think that's when Amiri Baraka got involved. Absolutely. Now, talk about, because it was a lot going on. They didn't jump up and just have one at 72. Right, right, right. You mean, but, right. You, but you have a lot going on, and actually it was a brother from the New York Amsterdam News who well, wait, actually... Well, wait a minute. Before you mention that, I, I want to put this in, in kind of uh, the top of the, uh, in the, uh, in the comments so you can kind of throw it in. Uh, you know... The book shows a picture of Amir Baraka on the front. Uh-huh. And he was key in that whole thing, uh, 67 and 72. Right. But it was a lot of people, I would assume, you help me with this, it was a lot of people that was involved that got on the trains, the buses, maybe a few planes at that time, and went around the country to start organizing. Absolutely. Organization was key in in uh, a key factor in this. Talk about some of the people that might be nameless or faceless that was very 
instrumental in organizing this conference. Okay, so a brother from New York Amsterdam News, and I do not, I, I don't, I can't forget, this, I forget this brother's name. He called for a convention in an editorial, right? I see Davis would begin to call for a convention. But in many ways, it is Amiri Baraka, who at that time now, you know, Carmichael has left the Panthers in many ways. We're still under, you know, a lot of government suppression. So Baraka in many ways emerges as the spokesperson for the nationalists, all right? Um, uh, magnetic personality. But Baraka also understood the power of electoral politics based upon what they did in Newark, all right? So when Baraka begins to talk to the nationalists about having a convention, they buy into Baraka because they saw how this local experience of black power worked in Newark for a brief period of time. And Baraka's like, we need to take this piece nationally. Now, what is interesting, when the Congressional Black Caucus sees this momentum Baraka's building up, what they do at the time, they basically decide to co-opt this idea of a convention, all right? So mm-hmm. the convention will be held in Gary, Indiana, March 1972. But beginning in the summer of 1971, Brother Booker, you would begin to see a series of local, statewide, and regional meetings all leading to this large um, uh, move, uh, this large meeting in, uh, in Gary, Indiana. So in Texas, Barbara Jordan was involved. In Cleveland, Carl Stokes was involved. And in Detroit, Coleman Young, who will be future mayor, was involved. And so in many ways, you had a lot of these local activists um, who were organized. Now, I'll say this. In a lot of places, it got tense between the nationalists and and the black elected officials. The state of New York, when they had their state convention, they passed a resolution. They said, we will have an equal amount of, 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 of delegates who identify as nationalists and an equal amount of delegates who identify as more integrationists. Uh, black elected officials. Mm-hmm. So this thing was very, very organized. And, and and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, man, has all these documents. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so what they did at the local and state level, they would have a local meeting. Then the local group would send delegates to the statewide meeting. And then at the state level, the statewide body would send delegates to Gary, Indiana. And so in many ways, it was a full-fledged political convention. And let me tell you why it was critical. Go ahead. Because they're coming together to deal with one or two principal issues, three three principal issues. The first issue they're going to deal with in Gary, why they want to have a convention is they want to have a broad discussion about whether or not black people should leave the Democratic Party and form their own political party. That's number one. The second reason they want to meet is to decide are we going to run an African-American presidential candidate in the election for 72. That's where Shirley Chisholm comes in. Mm -hmm. And the third reason they're going to meet is because they want to motivate everyday ordinary black folk to run for office at the local county and state and federal level. So that's, they're going to, they have three reasons for meeting. Those are the three. Richard jumping here because some of these things that he talked about now, we were talking about that earlier. And I know you've got some things you want to throw into the mix. Go ahead, Richard. Well, I want, I want to just reemphasize the the um, and you mentioned the black um, political political representative. Mm-hmm. Um, is it fair to bring in the um, I'm going to use the term they use the black Negro establishment that was the base for those black elected officials compared to the um, quote unquote black power community nationalists. 
And, and so, Brother Richard, this is a good point. Let me let me step in. So I remember it was a brother from uh, St. Louis, I think, Clay. He got elected Congress, uh, Congress from St. Louis. Here is what he said. He, he brought up a good point. He said, how dare some of my black power brothers and sisters say I don't represent the people when I was elected, follow me now, from an all-black district by several hundred thousand black folk. And he said, how are you going to say I don't speak for the masses of people, but somehow you speak for the masses of people when your local black power organization has never had more than 40 members? Now, I thought that was profound. That he says, you want to call me a sellout or an integrationist, but it's, I was actually elected by black people in a formal process, whereas you, and he said it, he said, basically, y'all nationalists talk loud, but ain't really saying nothing. And I saw, I saw in many ways, a very, very powerful uh, debate going on in that particular conversation. Now, is that is that the reason why, uh, as this, and I, and I don't have a date when, when yeah. you came into office, but is that the reason why the Congressional Black Caucus comes into being? Absolutely. Because you have like nine or 10 or 11 Congress people now at one time, right? Uh, of course, we had the brother Dawson from Chicago back in the day, but he in many ways the only one. You had Colin Powell in the 1950s, but 67, 68, 69, that's when you sort of get a critical mass. And understand now, these people are elected in all black districts. So we can't, I, I think sometimes we want to question them. You can question their approach, but I don't think you can question their blackness or question whether or not they wanted to serve the people. And 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 and, and 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 Elliot, we can go back and forth, but uh, you know, as, as, as <laughs> brother, I'm bring this up. I mean, because it, it's the clarity. Because um, the clarity I'm looking for as I'm learning about, you know, learning, trying to put this in perspective. One, let's reemphasize that process you laid out because it goes. We've been exploring the Negro conventions mm-hmm. and the process of the Negro conventions, in which you explain happened in order to get to '72, was the same process. So we have a, a historical political process that it is a continuity it seems like as Absolutely. far as the, from local to state to national and the convention and, and creating de- delegates Absolutely. Um, the, the question i would raise as you looked over this in spite of the uh, um, getting elected from an all-black district could you would did you see that the difference also may have been generation well, I, I really believe that, you know, they really felt that they could bring forth legitimate change, you know, through through the political process. I mean, we got to remember, there was a lot of optimism there. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, secondly, we have to remember this, uh, uh, Brother Richard, is that I don't want to be too critical because they don't have any mentors. They have nobody to call for advice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So although they are Democrats, they are locked out of the broader white Democratic Party structure. Yeah, they have the CBC, don't have much money. They don't understand how much of the political, how things work in D.C. So in many ways, and I don't want to be too hard on them, they are sort of, Brother Richard, figuring it out as they go. Does that make sense? Yes, and, and but what I was raising as far as generational, that the, yeah. because, uh, um, and, and you lay out in your book, of the people, the different um, um, backgrounds people came to the, the delegates, they came from different backgrounds to the convention, right? Absolutely. Um, so the, 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 what is classified as the black power, um, um, were they a different generation that was those small, as, as you said, those small 
yes. different than the ones who would come out of Urban League, NAACP, yeah. um, who would have been living in those um, isolated districts that those Black representatives came from. So what, is it fair to be able to bring up that, that what you hear, even though they may not have, that those representatives got elected, that what you're seeing is young people identifying with black power. And also because as you lay, again, as you lay out in the book, that comes from the street. Yes. They come from the colleges. Mm-hmm. They come from working class, um, you know, welfare. They're not, um, you know, they may have voted for those black politicians in those districts, but they also are resonating with this new um, conceptual idea of black power. So that's what, what I mean. Yeah. One of the points I make in the book, Richard, is that black power was very sexy, right? Mm-hmm. Got a lot of headlines, uh, made us feel good about ourselves and who we were. Um, but the, the point I argue is that at some point, the black power movement itself had had the shelf life was about to be over, right? People were tired of marching. People were tired of protesting. And, and there was generally this, this optimism in the black community now that once we got our people in office, things will be different. Now, of course, we have hindsight now, but they really believed that. And like when you look at when Stokes get, gets elected mayor in 67, when Richard Hatcher gets elected mayor in 67, Kenneth Gibson in Newark, Maynard Jackson in Atlanta, I mean, you would have thought, man, it was, the, it, it was you know, it, the, the, the optimism was so high. It's like now all of our problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they really, really, they deep down believe that, that that was going to be the key to black liberation. But we know it's not and hasn't been. It's not now. But they they really believe that. that Listen, I, I, I totally agree that the, the enthusiasm was there. But it's some things that, that happened that has happened and they're still happening that we'll talk about, you know, as we go on in conversation. Uh, now, you talked about the impetus in the in, uh, organizing a lot of the uh the leadership from around the country whether it's grassroots whether it's uh a nationalist or or quote unquote integrationist yeah. um a lot of the planks and platforms now on 90 page 95 of the book it talks about the areas that the um seven areas that the the platforms came from uh yes sir economic empowerment political empowerment human development environmental development or protection, rural development, overseas mm-hmm. relations, and communications. And because um, Richard reminded me that uh, Queen Mother Moore added the, the plank on reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, see, this is, this is why I think even now it's important that we start having the discussions with black people, no matter where they are, because this problem has to be solved that we're facing. And we might not be able to do it together because Mm. some of the mindsets of black people might go in another direction, but at least everybody can hear them in the court Mm. of public black opinion. Yes, sir. They don't have to assume, even though a lot of times now, especially with social media and all, you almost see everybody's record and what they're doing. But right. at least you can hear them verbalize their position on things and you have something to to fill in your scorecard, so to speak. 
Yes, sir. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because the planks are developed. Yes. And when the planks are developed for the convention, then, uh, according to what you wrote, Amiri Barakin and some of the others took the planks to uh, Roy Wilkins and a few of the others to kind of get their blessings, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard. Well, not really. Roy Wilkins said he wasn't coming. Well, that, okay, <laughs> that, that's what. That's what I want Roy you. Roy Wilkins said he wasn't coming, but then he wants to comment on the proceedings. Although he said he wasn't going to participate. Yeah, that that's what I want. That's what I want you to go into because Richard reminded me that Roy Wilkins uh, went to the media and basically trashed what the men and women were trying to do. But go ahead. And, and, and this explains one of one of my one of my former PhD students, brother from New Orleans. He's he's doing a lot of work in Ghana. He always has a favorite quote. He says, "Whoever butters your bread has an effect on your stomach." Mm-hmm. All right. And we know the NAACP has never been exclusively funded by black folks. Roy Wilkins was told not to go to the convention, right, by, by a lot of his supporters within the NAACP, a lot of the white supporters of the NAACP. Baraka has no problem with that, but he's offended that you disrespect the spirit of the convention by not going, but now you want to critique. And, and at the time, understand, Wilkins didn't have much clout in the black community. Um, his power had many it had in many ways declined, mm-hmm. uh, and he was completely, completely, completely out of touch. But what was just disappointing about Wilkins not going is that you had black Republicans there, you had black Nixon officials there, um, you had conservatives. Every political mm-hmm. viewpoint within the black community was represented, and the NAACP is not going to go. So that showed the media they were out of touch. But back to those seven points you mentioned, Brother Booker. Uh, that document is the most thoroughly researched and most forward-thinking document related to Black advancement I've never seen. Now, in the book, you know, I, I talk about how a year prior to the convention, they put together these research teams, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had a team of Black scholars who worked over the period of eight or nine months on each of these topics. And I'm going to just show you how forward-thinking they were. I'm, I'm going to talk about two real quick. Go ahead. Like, take your time. About, can, what you say, Brother Booker? No, I said take your time. Go ahead. Okay. When they talked about rural development, here's what they said. They said, we know that many of you are, many of you all have migrated out of the South, but you still have property down home. They said, make sure you do not lose that property or sell it. This was 50 years ago because they were talking about how, um, although you may live in Detroit, Cleveland, or Philly, keep that property down home. Again, it'll serve as sort of an economic base for you long term. As it related to communications, and I tell my students this, and this blows them away. There's a quote in the communications plank that says, black people need to, need to keep their ears and eyes open for this new medium called, follow me now, cable television. Mm-hmm. It said, this unregulated form of communication has the ability to destroy black people. They said this in 1972. Mm. Ooh, it's heavy. And, and again, they talk about economic empowerment, political empowerment. They started talking about environmental protection. Now, when I asked my students, I said, give me some environmental issues. They talk about plastic bags, you know, um, driving the, the, the Toyota Prius. But environmental stuff to black folk, they spelled it out in, the ni- in 1972. They said you have a lot of black communities that were built on, on top of toxic dumping sites. Right. And they were on this. They were talking about Cancer Alley, that area that stretches between New Orleans, Louisiana, 
in Houston, Texas on Interstate 10, Cancer Alley. They were talking about that stuff 50 years ago. So I remind people that this man was a document far ahead of its time. Now, so we, so we can direct the audience, um, you know, one, to this is why you need to read the book, um, the, the, the Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political um, Convention of 1972. Um, but is this laid out in that Gary Declaration, which is called the Gary Declaration, which you speak to? Well, the Gary Declaration is more of a preamble, sort of, mm. this is why we're having a conference. They issued that. Uh, the day before the conference started, and Roy Wilkins attacked that as well, okay? The, the, what we're talking about, those seven planks, right, those were developed during the convention, and that became a part of uh, the National Black Political Strategy, all right, that they developed during the, during the conference. But again, you had these research teams who were doing a lot of work on this stuff eight or nine months before the conference was actually held. And that was one of the things that struck me to see that Vincent Harding and and in, in relationship to the the preamble, Vincent Harding and Bill Struckland was, you know, the, the the writers of that. And it um, was called the Institute of the Black World. It was an independent black think tank mm-hmm. out at the Atlanta University Center. And you hear that, Elliot? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 as the well, because I, I wanted to get into that that moment but and what you raise also is here they this research is done i mean these are still relevant um planks now right absolutely most definitely yeah and and the black um political elected officials are there um that that generation because we're now yeah. what two three generations removed now um i don't know if this is fair to ask did they take those planks, even though, you know, going the, the convention is dealing with the convention is, is one thing, but in, in taking the planks themselves, did those elected officials at that time go and take those planks into their movement of the political um, process, especially as a part of the CBC, which was just formally developed? The short answer is no. Um, Carl Stokes said something that was so profound before he ran for mayor. He said out of all the political offices that somebody might want to hold, he said being mayor is the best one. Somebody said why? He said because you can improve people's quality of life overnight. So let's say I'm, 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 I'm a congressman. I'm Louis Stokes from Cleveland. I got a nice title. I'm a congressman. But I don't have no power because I'm in a body with 420 other people. And I don't know how to make deals. I don't know how to, you know what I'm saying, work across the aisle. And, and let me tell you this. I'm, I'm going to digress for one minute. Most of listeners don't know this. When Barack Obama was a state senator, I believe he was state senator, he initially had talked about running for mayor of Chicago. When Daily, that Daily crew, that Daily Mafia found out Barack Obama was thinking about running for mayor of Chicago, they basically gave him an Illinois Senate seat because they understood how much power there was in being mayor of Chicago versus being in D.C. as a senator. So Stokes said it best 50, 60 years ago. He said being mayor of a city allows you to immediately improve the quality of life for black folks. So, so, so let me, and, and before I pass it back to you, Ellie, but let, let, let's get into the CBC, um, Diggs and, and Stokes. Right, mm-hmm. it's a and Stokes. Yep. What What did you find out as far as why did they decide they needed to have 
this particular caucus in order to, to you know, at that particular time? What, what was the, the dialogue and the thinking going on? At I mean, that time? number one, Nixon's in office. He's talking crazy, all right? And number two, they felt that, you know, that the Congressional Black Caucus could be the voice of Black America, in, in, in essence, right? That here, here were these people in D.C. elected to, you know, one of the highest offices in the land, and they felt, and these, they, and, and, and let me say this, Richard, these are good people, man. These are good folks. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And they really felt that black people needed a unified voice in Washington, D.C., right? Because they felt that they needed, there needed to be a body who could articulate the needs of black people at a national level. Richard, I can tell you hard on them, man. What what I'm trying to understand is because we have the disconnect, and you raise a a very important point, um, because even now people are saying um, the power is locally, right, compared to nationally, right? I mean, that's, you know, but what what, what, um, even as as representatives, recognizing that they're a part of diluted, their political power is diluted at the national level, Mm-hmm. Um, being able to be what I say, the voices, the, having the megaphone, because yeah. they still represent the local. They 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 get there by local votes. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, and the policies or the planks that they should be politically educating their constituents locally. Uh, there seems to be a disconnect compared to the at that point in time. And correct me if I'm wrong. The the Black power, there's different formations. They were dealing with culture, you know, trying to um, bring culture forward. They were dealing with um, local local politics. They yeah. were dealing with local issues. So they there was formation, and even bringing the gangs together. Those those that I don't believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. The local, I mean, the national politicians was doing that. Those were those local black po- black power nationalists were organizing and then those were the people who were attending the local com- um uh, de- becoming local de- delegates state de- delegates and therefore at by the 72 the national de- delegates so it's not being hard on under for us to understand that one structure has been continuing for 50 years and another structure has and that is the local we have uh, and, uh, right. correct me if i'm wrong the the the, the, the one thing I, the one missed opportunity i see is that I don't think the nationalists and the black elected officials really knew how to play um, inside outside game. Yes. You know, you, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, people talk about King would always tell this people, these folks now you got two choices. You can deal with me in the Southern Christian leadership conference, or you can go deal with brother Malcolm in the nation of Islam, who you want to deal with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and I don't think and, and, and I think the black power people I, I, in their in their from their perspective I don't think they felt the system could be reformed. Right. You know, I, I think they felt it needed to be completely blown up and 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 rebuilt. Whereas the black elected officials had a little bit more optimism that they could make change from within. And and I think that that's why that the convention was a good place to at least if we can maintain that structure, those yeah. two positions can always be at least in dialogue with each other. Because a policy could come out of it. A policy and an organizing political effort can come out of that, even though they have two different ideological thrusts. But the structure got got blown up. And the the question I have, is that 
this um, when Stokes and Jackson had that meeting two days before mm-hmm. the convention. What what did you find out that what what was the reason they needed to do that? Um, everybody was already assembled, mm-hmm. people were already coming, mm-hmm. the structure was already defined, and it seemed like another dialogue was going on. What was that? I think some people like Stokes and others who were, you know, understand, man, you know, they're on that Democratic Party payroll, right? Mm. They did not want to see Black people pull out the Democratic Party. And they made some legitimate arguments. Number one, they said, we don't have the, an apparatus set up to be an effective third party. That's that's the first thing Soap said. Because his point was, after what he did in Cleveland, he said, this takes time to build up. And he said, we will politically neuter ourselves for the 72 election if we jump out there having a third party and there's no apparatus set up. Um uh, number two, you know, I mean, understand, you know, these politicians, you know, they like getting, you know, they like getting the goodies from the Democratic Party. You know what I mean? They like, you know, they had access to giving some folks jobs, you know, had titles, had some clout, and they weren't willing to walk away from that, you know, from that Democratic Party apparatus, you know, because they felt they felt there, there was some value in staying with the Democratic Party. But I really think they did not want to see black folk jump out there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And say we're gonna do a third party and have it blow up in their face with the seventy-two elections, and 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 that's and that's that's an important point. And again, trying to understand this in historical context. And mm-hmm. um, my last point on this, in the sense of was, um, and this is a speculative thought, you know, um, from you. Know, so they didn't. I got the impression from your book they didn't give um, Brock any indication that they were going to have this dialogue. So my question is, did they have, was this an intense dialogue about should we stay the reason why we shouldn't before the convention or, I mean, you gave indication that they, they already had an ideal even a year before of this, that, that, um, that they want, that this was going to be the move or was it the issue about Shirley Chisholm running for president and the split between them about that because i see percy sutton and them were also in there was that the reason why they had the caucus in order to make this decision well let me say first of all they didn't really people a lot of black elected officials didn't respect baraka number one okay Mm -hmm. they thought him as a little just a black power guy you know didn't know anything about electoral politics you know what i mean so on one level uh, you know, there's some insecurity there and some jealousy there that this dude over here is, lead, is leading this convention, you know, what I mean, who's never held political office before. The Shirley Chisholm piece is interesting because um, uh, there, were, there was no way they were going to support, they were going to put her up to be for a presidential candidate. I think you got a number of issues there. One, going to be old-fashioned sexism, that's number one. But number two, they felt that she didn't represent Black people. They said she identified more with white feminists than with black people. All right. Mm -hmm. And so Chisholm, you know, she participates in these, in these, in these meetings leading up to Gary, but she doesn't really want to participate because she understood that if her name was brought to the floor, I would argue that she would get in many ways voted down. But again, you know, she's dealing with a lot of sexism from these brothers, but number two, their critique was, is that she identifies more with, with white women than she does with, 
with black people. So you had uh, Brother Richard, just a whole lot going on at one time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As it would be, <laughs> as it would be. Yeah. So, so here we here we are. They're they're now at the convention, and all yeah. these people from all over the country is is there, um, and they read out the uh, you know the the preamble is uh, yeah. the declaration. Um, um, they. One of the issues that comes out of the preamble that, well, no, I want to back up the white press. Mm -hmm. And because I think that we shouldn't, yes. um, when we deal with these kind of political formations, exclude how they play in. Absolutely. This. So um, how, how do you uh, see them, the white press, in characterizing, polarizing, and mm -hmm. getting accommodation from these awesome. different fractions? Well, you know, Baraka, you know, said they weren't allowed to come. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think they did it at the New York State Convention, too. He said because the, all the white media wants to do is, is divide. And, you know, I think I think he had to budge a little bit at the end on letting him in. But the first thing you see on the front page of the Chicago Tribune of the, the, of the first day of the summit, it says uh, Gary plunges into chaos or, you know, or black confab is in chaos. And Barack is saying, no, th this is how a political convention works. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. You know, we come together, we debate, we argue, we family, but this is how it works. And so the first article from the Chicago Tribune is something negative, and that would be the tone throughout all the black, throughout all the white newspapers. And it's funny, um, Brother Richard, Brother Griffin, Brother Booker, if you were to read um, the Chicago Tribune account, the Detroit Free Press account, but then read the black newspaper account, you would think they were talking about two different conventions. <laughs> you know? And, and, and here's something I want to point out. The reason they chose Gary and Dana, this, you know, Gary and Dana, they chose Gary, number one, because it had a black mayor, all right? They felt Gary was a good experiment in black political power. And number two, this is important, they also chose Gary because they knew that a black mayor could control the police department. Mm. And they didn't want any kind of police brutality any of that stuff going on during the conference. So they go to Gary, Indiana, and they have the convention at a high school. Now, this is this is it's interesting. The delegates get in Friday morning, but they have to hang outside in, in the high school parking lot until school is over, all right? I mean, they got PE classes going on in the gym. And so they couldn't even get in there and set up until Friday after school. But here's what, here's what I love about the conference. It was accessible. They weren't in the... Um, they didn't have it at the Four Seasons or the JW. So you see how far we've come from that? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was accessible. It was in the community, and it was at a high school. And the people who went, they just talked about how, you know, they did it old school style. You know, people coming into Gary, not enough hotel space. They said ordinary black folk in Gary, Indiana, opened up their homes to, to people coming in for the conference. And some of those people said, that was the beginning of some relationships that lasted four and five decades. And even to this day, you know, those relationships built during those three or four days in Gary, Indiana. We're in conversation this evening with activist, author, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Leonard N. Moore, the book, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 72. You can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215 490 32 again is 215-490-9832. Professor Moore, um yes, sir. because I, I, I wanna 
I want to kind of move it up a little bit because we see that things happen during the convention, and Richard touched on it kind of before things started when you've seen these step, separate meetings happen that is mm-hmm. going on now. Yes. And yes. I, I, yes. I'll put an analogy to it because you mentioned in the beginning that a lot of these men came from communities where black people voted for them. Mm-hmm. And and they went in office saying, well, the community voted for me. And mm-hmm. they're right in that respect. Well, two things. I noticed from the convention that we can do anything we want mm. if left to our own ingenuity Absolutely. and and creativeness to do it. The, the convention and the planks and the things that were done and the organization from around the country and getting delegates is something that we can even do now, but we're mm. not left to our own uh, uh, ingenuity to do this. And we'll touch on that as we go forward in the conversation. But one of the things I, I wanted to mention, and before I lose my train of thought in dealing with it, is um, having the oh, – hold on a second. I'm gonna, um, you know what? This is what we'll do. I'm going to take a brief break. All right. And then when we come back, I'll ask that question. We got a couple calls on the line. I know they want to get involved. But um, we're going to take this into another area because uh, it's clear, uh, Professor Moore, that if something happens to our politicians now that maybe started happening 50 years ago, and and I'll use an analogy. Um, Somebody goes into the service. Mm-hmm. And you might have in your mind that I want to be a soldier, and that's why I go into service. <laughs> but you got other people that are maybe drafted, that don't want to be there, that are yeah. forced there, and that are in that environment. But once you get there, you're or, uh, before, excuse me, before you get there, you're taking through uh, um what do they call it? Because uh, I've never been in the service. Uh, uh, the, the boot camp. Boot camp. So when you come out of boot camp, you're ready to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. And you're ready to do what's necessary. So it's a boot camp effect that changes, and I'm just using that in rough terms, that changes black politicians into something else. And we'll we'll kind of see that moving forward because it's things that happened after the convention that's really important that goes into play right now. Let me say this before we break. Go ahead. My only critique of those first generation, you know, black elected officials, particularly people in Congress, is that they stayed too long. Mm-hmm. Stayed too long, you know. And you know, uh, Stoke stayed too long. Uh, John Lewis stayed too long. Um, and this is no disrespect to his legacy, but what has happened is you, they, they were more concerned with getting elected than doing things in their district. And I'll say this, and I don't care if people get, we've had some black congressional, black folks in Congress who've been there three decades and their district has never improved. Right. Exactly. Never exactly. Never. And, 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 but, but also let me, let me say this as well, is that not only were they there three decades, but you, we've missed out on two generations of dynamic young people representing us in Congress. Mm. And what they say is, yeah, we know he's not effective, but 
he has seniority, he's going to chair this committee. Hell, what about his district? Mm. I'm sorry, man. Uh, no. We'll get you started on that stuff. <laughs> we could take a brief break when we come. They never leave office. Mm. It's like a Supreme Court appointment. Or or colonial or colonial masters. We go take a brief break when we come back. We could continue the conversation. You can get involved too by dialing two one five four nine zero nine eight three two. Again, it's two one five four nine zero ninety eight thirty two. We're in conversation with author, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Leonard Moore. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. And just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. 
RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Twelve years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be wrecked, uh, if they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. I'm not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over $100 billion in reparations and gets $4 billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over $200 million, and they get $21 million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. 
And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you called me a nationalist because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House, you can even put him in his, he's going to still be a Tom. You can put them anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. Let me just say this before our time winds up. And that is, I want the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kinte. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office, and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kinte has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene, study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip, and you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community. 
and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 812 here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, activist, author, and professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Leonard and Moore. The book, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 1972. You can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Thirty-two. We got a couple calls here on the line, but before we do, that, well, let's take a couple of these calls. Uh, let's go to Detroit, Michigan, Detroit. Brother Ellen, uh, Brother Richard, this is this is Errol Henderson. I'm calling from State College, Pennsylvania. How are you, sir? You hey, see, my cell well, still has my. I'm going to tell you, I'm a man now. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Richard. You see, my sale still shows my hometown of Detroit. And I, fitting for this conversation, I was born and raised in the 13th Congressional District of Charles Diggs. Hmm. And um, also fitting today, talking to brothers in uh, Philadelphia, it's the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the break-in uh, uh, FBI office at Media Pennsylvania that exposed COINTELPRO by hmm. those, uh, they were eight uh, white activists who didn't need to take a class on allyship. They just... They just uh, broke in, took the documents, and that's how we learned about COINTELPRO from Media <laughs> Pennsylvania. That's right. Um, but also, I uh, want to show uh, uh, appreciation and respect to Brother uh, Moore. I hope the best for his uh, folks that are down in Texas, considering what they're dealing with. And um, I just want to get straight to it then. Uh, I've read Brother's book, and it's just good to hear his enthusiasm and how he's talking about this, and I appreciate that so much. Um, the point that he made about William Clay was, was telling when uh, Clay, uh, 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 Clay uh, confronted Baraka, and I had a quote from Clay. He says, uh, William Clay, who's a CBC member, Democrat from Missouri, he said, quote, my district is 49% black and 51% white, and I get elected every two years. Baraka's district is 65% black, and they send Peter Rodino, a white man, to Congress. Now tell me, what business do I have letting him tell me about political power and political organization, end quote. That was what Clay said uh, mm -hmm. with respect to uh, Baraka. Mm -hmm. But where I find Brother Moore, and I agree with him, uh, this uh, appreciation of the struggles and travails of the, uh, the black elected officials, uh, his enthusiasm I feel better about because that's, uh, when I just looked at the book, the title, The Defeat of Black Power, I, I, I wasn't feeling it at first, I'm telling you that. <laughs> but then listening to him and putting it in that context, I get it. But... I wish he would said more about uh, the reason I brought up uh, COINTELPRO and, and also the drawdown from the Vietnam War and the recession that's going to really undermine black elected officials' power and, of course, the, 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 the um, tepid support of the Carter administration of the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill, which was their big signature bill after Gary. But I want to go to this. I want to go to this. Um, it's from page 151 in Brothers Book. And, um, and this is a concern I have and I, that I'd like him to address. That seems to be in contrast to some of the enthusiasm that he's sharing today. Um, this part here, I, I have a concern about. He said, 
Uh, Brother Moore says, looking back, black nationalism was simply an unrealistic concept for the masses of black Americans whose blood, sweat, and tears were woven into the mortar and fabric of American society. With African Americans gaining political power in the early 1970s, black nationalists did not evolve with the times. This is from page 151. Their narrow beliefs and outlook made it impossible for them to embrace the most basic forms of electoral politics, since they considered going, voting to be a waste of time. They were skeptical and suspicious of black elected officials as those seeking political office. As a result, they often held politicians to unrealistic standards and expectations, end quote, from page 151. Now, I, I think this is, uh, one, I don't agree with this. Uh, and the other is um, it ignores developments, not only with black, black nationalists and black power. Clearly, they understood black electoral politics, that this case of Baraka demonstrates, but not even Baraka. Look at what the Panthers at the same time in 73 in Oakland, California, Bobby and Elaine do uh, credible jobs running in the elections for mayor and council person in 73, and in 77, they would elect Lionel Wilson as the first black mayor of Oakland. So I, I, I find it plain with too broad brush, and I'd like, brother, to respond. When you, just, uh, when you say that black nationalism was unfit uh, for the time, and especially when we consider now, because brother says, looking back, you got major candidates uh, talking about reparations. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying they're committed to it. Don't get me wrong. But who thought of that? And I'm talking about reparations, not a black president. That's the integrationist orientation. But what black nationalists were talking about, Shokwe Lumumba's son is that um, the, Shokwe Lumumba became mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. You see what I'm saying? So it's not that they were unrealistic about uh, electoral politics. And that point I find, Brother Moore, and, um, uh, that I'd like to respond to, it seems to paint with too broad brush about what black masters were. And as sophisticated as you correctly point out, many black elected officials were, you, you don't seem to do that when you're, again, that page you said looking back. So now you have a retrospect to consider. And, and, and the, the excellent analysis you were talking about with respect to, they're looking at uh, a toxic waste, they're looking at all the gamut. It, it seems lost at the end, and it's the, it, it seems more a defeatist orientation by the time we get to page 151. But I'd like Brother to respond to that, if you would. Brother, thank you, man. I was up in uh, Pittsburgh before the pandemic. Uh, four former Panthers walked in, and I knew we were going to get into it. I, I appreciate the debate. I appreciate the challenge. But, but, but let, me give you, let me give you my take. And I, and I want to begin with a quote from Tupac's mom when I invited her to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 2003, 2004. Here's, here's what she said, and I'm answering my question. She said, and, 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 and excuse me, I, I, I'm, um, I'm going to use some profanity because I just want to quote her correctly. She said, y'all into all that black power shit? She said, leave that shit on the wall. She said, because there was a whole lot more that went on that I don't even want to talk about, that we're not even going to deal with. She said, you all have made these people out to be superheroes. But she said, that's just one, that's just one half of the story. So let, me, so let me tell you where I'm going. Many of these nationalists had very, very small followings. I'm thinking in Cleveland, Harlell Jones, Afroset, Republican New Libya in Cleveland. They had very, very small followings. And at some level, their followers needed tangible benefits. We need some housing, okay? We need health care. They needed tangible stuff. Now, you give me the Panthers in Oakland, I would say, brother, that is a, that's a small sample size. Um, and so I'm not trying to say that what they did had no value. I just believe that they did, in many ways, fail to pivot. They failed to pivot to electoral politics, and you got to understand that people were optimistic. We're looking back on it now. We know now electoral politics aren't the key to black liberation, but you can't critique people for thinking that it was then. And back to this idea of me saying black nationalism was um, 
was, was, was an unattainable concept. Black people don't believe this is a white man's country. Most of us, you know, we're going to go to church. We're going to work. And most of us, whether you like it or not, we believe in the principles of America. And I would argue because we built it. South Carolina had a black majority. Virginia during the colonial period, but 60% white, maybe with 35% black. So we have always been here. And so, and so you have these different strands of nationalism. But most of us, if we are honest, man, most of us consider ourselves Americans. And, and I'll say this, as black as I came to be, claim to be, brother, and I know I'm, I know I'm digressing. I know you're going to check me on that, but it's cool. I spent a lot of time in South Africa, spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time in China. And wherever I go abroad, even amongst the brothers and sisters on the continent, I am reminded that at my core, I am more American to them uh, than black. So I don't want to—I don't want to make it seem like the nations had no value. But I will stand by my argument that they didn't evolve. And like we said earlier on the show, I thought we could have played inside-outside game a little bit more instead of just critiquing and attacking each other. I don't know if I, can I respond, brother Elliot. Oh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, one, I uh, appreciate what you said, brother, but I think that's a pretty narrow conception of black masters. I don't think many black masters uh, would argue that African-Americans are African-Americans. You seem to take one brand of black nationalists, separatist nationalists, and uh, you forget progressive nationalism and revolutionary nationalism. The Republic of New Africa suggested there were four fundamental consequences of freedom, and they supported all of them. And only one was the separate statehood in the South. The, uh, one of the four was participation as a full, uh, in, uh, uh, as a, a citizen in a full and unfettered multiracial democracy. Mm-hmm. So is not arguing, it's not opposed to being an American citizen. It's a different kind of American citizen because it requires a different kind of America, <laughs> an actual multiracial democracy in terms of politics, economics, and, and, and society. That's uh, and the social system. So that's that's what I would say to the uh, the, the the one point. But but and I'm and I'm and I'm shy. You say I I use Oakland and the Panthers as a small sample size. <laughs> the Panthers I think are representative of much more than than Oakland. I want to come back to that. But then you use your personal experience. You an individual. Your personal experience traveling around the world as a representative of something outside your personal experience. Since you checked me about small sample size. But back to the but back to the uh, the, uh, the Panthers and to try to bring some. Um, See, if, if, if we can find a point of agreement here, uh, not only for that sake, but, but because I think uh, the, the, the book makes powerful arguments, too. And, and, I'm, and I'm genuinely interested in this, uh, Brother Moore. Brother Moore, do you think that part of the problem in black nationalism making a pivot? And I partly agree with that, uh, Brother Moore, but I would only qualify and say some black masters as some of the most prominent. Because Baraka pivoted like an MF, didn't he? I, I, excuse me, <laughs> like a mother, I should say. Because he's going to pivot straight to Maoism. He pivoted, right? He pivoted too far. But, but would you agree, Brother Moore, that maybe part of what happened was they, they sought this national when they should have spent more time developing the local, developing the local in Oakland, in Cleveland, in New York, in Detroit, in Atlanta, and not trying to build something national when black folks, we really didn't have a national presence per se to have representation from each state, for example, but to just follow the local buying into and recognizing what you said before. And I've heard that quote before too, uh, uh, I believe it was Stokes, right? Who said that being mayor, you could affect people's lives directly. If we would just simply said our national effort should be aimed at not a national party, not a national, but local ones, just like rainbow coalitions that emerge 
in these local areas in Chicago, maybe different than the one in New York, different from the one in Cleveland, and that's cool too. But the but the chimera of seeking some type of national represent, representation and this unity that's supposed to be bound by 40 million people in so many different circumstances, that was a difficulty that nationalists didn't adjust to. What would you think about that, brother? Oh, that's a good critique. I think as black people, we, had, we, have, we have always placed a value on getting our people in the highest offices in the land, because we've got to understand those things were restricted from us for so long. And we just believe if I can get to Congress or I can become a Senator or president like Barack, then, you know, then we can, we can solve our problems. But we both know that, you know, when, when black folk got in political office, you know, the goalposts begin to change and the rules of the game change, but no brother, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I hardly accept your critique, man. I wish we had more of these things where we could just come and debate. You know what I'm saying? Understanding that our heart's in the right place, but no, I, 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 I received the critique and I felt it from those brothers in Pittsburgh that night. And we stood out there for two hours. You know what I'm saying? Just talking yes, about, sir. you know, in, in retrospect, what could have been done differently. So thank you for the comments. And I also want to thank Brother Elliot and Brother Richard for creating a forum like this where we can have this exchange. And uh, even as we disagree in ideas, respect each other and appreciate each other. And I respect the effort. And uh, like I said, I got your book. I bought the book. <laughs> and I appreciate read it, too. And I share it with others. Thank you so much. And thank you, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. Professor Henderson, uh, thanks for your I'm contribution. I'm your book. I'm, 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 I'm updating. Keep updating. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you, Brother Richard. We'll talk soon. <laughs> yes, sir. Take care. Professor Moore, um, Professor Henderson kind of opened the door to the path I wanted to go down. Um, We, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about these subjects, we 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 talk about them from the respect of um, our people coming to these things organically. Okay, and when I say organically, I'm talking about the ideas, uh, the approaches, the methods. Uh, you know, developed organically among us. But we can see that leading up to the convention and especially almost immediately after, that it was outside interference from other groups, nationalities, or religious groups in uh, uh, as far as the agenda of black people. Now, it is clear whether you... Uh, uh, it was integrationists involved at that time. It was nationalists. It's clear to every black person, whether they uh, integrationists or nationalists, that black folks are not allowed in this country to come up with things to progress the people on their own. It always has to be approved agenda by our former uh, uh, oppressors. Uh, if it's not, then it's something that will be attacked and hopefully smashed. And when I say hopefully smashed, I'm talking about from their perspective. Um, we've seen the, the, uh, the, the Black Power Convention of 72, the, the planks that they developed, the cross-section of people that were there and participating, whether they were genuine or not. I'm not even talking about that point of it. I'm talking about their participation in nailing out planks and platforms. And that's dangerous to the power structure of this country. It was dangerous for them. Um, Go ahead, because we've seen interference happen almost as soon as the convention was over. But talk about it from that respect. 
Go ahead. The convention is going to split over three main issues. Number one, it splits over the issue. Of, I'm going to list them and I'm going to go deal with one by one. It splits over the issue of busing. Number two, it splits over the issue of Israel. Mm-hmm. And number three, it splits over the issue of reparations. All right. Now, number one, the busing issue. Any African-American parent will tell you that getting your child up at 530 in the morning, putting them on a bus at 6 a.m., sending them way across town to a neighborhood where they aren't wanted to be taught by teachers that don't want them there is a disaster. But the NAACP had this strong, their whole motivation was school integration, and they looked at school busing in many ways as a way to achieve that, despite African-American parents saying, no, I want my kids to go to neighborhood schools. So number one, it splits over busing because the people there supported by the NAACP said, well, we can't go against school busing because that's one of the NAACP's uh, major initiatives, number one. Number two, it splits over the issue, issue of uh, Palestinian liberation, all right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was a, there was a uh, uh, thing, what do they call it? Thing, what do they call it? Uh, what do they call that word, man? It's a fancy word I'm looking for. But anyway, <laughs> there, there, was a, there was something introduced that said, you know, um, that Israel was, you know, occupying Palestinian land. And I've I've shortened, I've abbreviated very much. And so these two issues here are issues where I would argue that were the agenda was set by people outside the black community. Okay. Uh You know what I'm saying? And then thirdly, and and then number four, let me me take it a step further. Coleman Young shows up, met running the sort of the Michigan delegation, but it's clear that he has been sent there by labor, the AFL-CIO. And so he, in many ways, can't speak or be as free as he wants to be, although he was a key member of the Michigan delegation. So to your point is that you're right, even at a black event, a black conference, a black convention, we still have these other forces in many ways that are manipulating some of our delegates as if they're puppeteers. Richard, go ahead, jump in there. Yeah, I was wondering, and when you when you said that, and, and listening to Professor Henderson, um, is is that now, now I lost the thought, but the the recognition now of these forces, it does that also speak to the political immaturity of especially the black elected officials and the black political body as a whole? In a sense, there's two things I hear y'all saying, or is being said. We should have said local. We should have been more focused locally compared to nationally. And then the whole thing of outside influence on delegates or representatives. You know, what it's, I think what it speaks to is when you've been locked out of the political process for so long, you become dependent upon other people. Mm. And so now that you are in the political process and you can elect your own politicians and, and representatives, you, their step dependency is still there. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you are beholden, I would argue, to groups of people who helped you out when you had no political, uh, no political power, no political agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, uh, before I uh, move on, let's, let's take another call. Let's go to, uh, Chalfont. Chalfont, caller. Caller, are you there? Let's put them back on hold. Let's go to 773 in Chicago. 773. 773, are you there? Let's put them back on hold. Let's go to 404. 404? 404 in Atlanta. 
I know these lines ain't messed up. Maybe somebody fell asleep. Uh, uh, <laughs> Professor Moore, they want to hear. They want to hear us dialogue on this. I guess. uh, Yeah, Professor Moore, the um, Massachusetts senator at the time, Edward Brooke, made comments um, about him not being a black politician. He's a politician, and things of that nature. Uh, Almost after the meeting was over, the the convention was over. uh, The NAACP basically pulled out and disassociated themselves from what was going on. And I think we see the beginnings then because you, at that time you had what, 13 members in the black caucus. Now it's uh, 55, maybe 60. I'm not sure of the exact total, Uh, but you have a lot more, a lot more now. But at the time with 13 members, you see the beginnings of what has developed now into the psyche and mindset of the majority of black elected officials uh, where they've been schooled by some of the people and some of the people that was at that convention now are gone. Um, And some of them have just left like John Lewis. So you see that some of our elected officials now that represent black districts have been schooled by these men into how they should pursue political office, how they should behave in political office, who you should not offend in political office and who you can really speak in the real behalf of in political office. Uh, it's, it's uh, organizations now popping up in cities to, to develop young black potential candidates. Uh, Obama has one, the brother's keeper It's other organizations out there to kind of develop and nurture uh, the next quote unquote next generation of black elected officials. Uh, but we see a disconnect uh, with the mindset. And I'm not saying that everybody has to have a pan-African mindset has to be a, uh, a, 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 a integrationist or an assimilationist because those mindsets are in our communities. If we, if we want to uh, put people in, in, in those different areas. But I do believe that it's necessary that we have conversation, that the people can hear the positions of these people and make their own decisions on whether or not they they want to follow them. We we have a lot of people now, as opposed to them, where media drives a lot of these candidates. People run to the polls and pull a lever. They don't know who Leonard, man, I'm just using your example, who Leonard Moore is. They just see a black face. Uh, he might be, an, uh, you know, a, a pretty handsome young guy or an attractive sister. And she has money behind her and uh, media power. The media has her out there and they pull a lever. And especially if it's a Democratic lever. But they really don't know uh, where these people stand politically. Uh, they don't know their goals and objectives. Uh, They might hear him say a couple of things that'll tickle their ears. And the next thing you know, the person is in office. He's in there for two, four years. And then they turn around and say, well, this guy hasn't done anything for the community. (laughs) So, you know, this, this is a, it's a real problem that our people are facing. And when we try to deal with it, similar to 72, it's always some type of outside interference. And I, I, well, and, and, uh, 
because we got a couple of calls. Let, let me see if a couple of these calls want to have some comments on it. And uh, let's go to Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, Oberlin, Ohio. No, I kind of came in kind of late. I can't, you know, I was just listening to the guests. Good. Okay. All right. Well, you, 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 Richard, I want you to jump in here, but let me say something. Professor Moore, you, your book has some of our people there scratching their heads because they might not know what to do about this situation. Some people, you, they might want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but when you're talking about other black people, and we got to realize this, just like you mentioned earlier, if you go to a family reunion, a family dinner or whatever, and you sit down and start talking, you'll hear all of these mindsets among our people. It's, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be talked about. It's got to be thrashed out. And we got to come up with a consensus agreement like they did in 72 before those men backed out. See, you know, it, it, listen, if they came in, didn't agree with all the planks and platforms. Okay. That's understandable. We're not going to agree with everything, but if you make a commitment to try to move forward for the sake of black people, not for my political, uh, 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 entrepreneurship or cause I want to stay in office. But if you're moving forward for the sake of all black people, then you might have to table what you personally believe for the sake of everybody. But when and, and you, when you go in and then back out mm-hmm. of your, uh, 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 con- um, you know, things that you promised that you'll see through that that's bad, but, but go ahead. And then Richard, jump well, in. you know, I was in Riverside, California about three or four years ago. And I was talking to a pastor and he said the problem is that we don't hold these people accountable. And he said we don't hold them accountable because we go to church with them, maybe in the same fraternity or sorority with them, maybe in our same social circles. And he said we have to start calling people out as if to say stuff like, um, you know, Richard, man, you're a really good guy. And I really like hanging out with you. But you have failed us in your role as a city council person. Exactly. We're going to hold you out. Mm-hmm. He talks about we don't hold people accountable. But the second, the big, there's a bigger issue, is what issue are we going to rally around? You know, and, and, and we got to deal with the class issue of black America. Cornell West wants black people to get upset that Harvard won't tenure him. And so my point is, we are so class driven. And I'm going to talk about some of my black academic colleagues who are very revolutionary on social media. They love writing about black folk but they don't even interact with black students on their campus. And so my question is, what issue are we going to rally around? It can't be healthcare because the folks who got jobs feel like they good. It can't be schools. A lot of our folks in the suburbs, the only issue we typically can rally around is police brutality. And that's why it is a lightning rod because that's one issue that affects all of us, no matter how you look, what, what your skin shade is, or how much money you make. And so that's the idea what are we going to rally around? That is the question. And, 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 and you bringing up that, it, bring, it brings up two things, because I think what the, um, and what your book brings up, and you heard me make reference to the Negro conventions. It's not that, uh, I, I would say, and, and I'm open for the pushback, but it's not just the rally around. We need the structure to be able to rally within, right? The conventions provided us a non-political structure where all those different, like going to the dinner and sitting at the dinner table with, with your family and friends. The structure was being able to go to the dinner, mm. knowing everybody was going to be there. Somebody called it 
knowing what it was a place that we were all going to go, and even knowing that we had differences that when we get there. But we knew next year we was going to come back because that's the place that we're going to. Politically, I don't know if we have the structures, and, and you used the term Elliot, organic. The structures seem to come up organically compared mm. to being permanently within our, that represents so that these issues can be brought up debated and prioritized as far as where we're going to go as far as public policy or whether we deal with it locally or nationally or what the structure that's uh, I, that's what i can but, but, but richard but richard it's 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 a lot of this stuff is class driven you got corporate negroes who get up you know talking about microaggressions and all this kind of stuff folks in the hood can care less about that folks right. in the hood can care less that when you went to your company holiday party that they called you Jason instead of Leonard. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But too often, if I can just be honest, Richard, it's the black middle class that wants to drive the public policy agenda. I made a concerted effort after the George Floyd murder, and I went to his funeral in Houston, by the way. I did not take a single media interview Mm -hmm. because what typically happens is that the black middle class, the the white media use the black middle class um, um, as sort of a surrogate, right? Right. So we get the book deals, we get the speaking engagements, but the people who are out in the street every day, they don't get anything. So we have got to come to grips that a lot of our stuff is driven by class. And, and, and I, I won't disagree with that. And let me, let me, so, so the question I, I have, and I don't disagree with it, and it still okay. requires that we would have within those different income class distinction, uh-huh. some mutual understanding that we're either working for each other or we're not. But gotcha. but we, stay, we, we we need to have that. And in this case, in a society of push individualism, that, you know, I, it's understood why. Looking at the origin of, the, you, know, you spoke earlier about the origin of the uh, CBC and, and what they, when they, when they came together, you know, um, what they thought they were representing. Do you see now that the core values or at least the core representation of the CBC is the same as that, as when they were in their origin, um, when, when they came together, when um, um, Dixon Stokes um, was formulating it. And that's, yeah. I think the CBC is an organization that's, it has symbolic value. Um, I don't know. They need to be calling conventions every year. You know, we need to be putting action plans together every year. I mean, Urban League at least does that. You know what I mean? But I see it as a very ineffective body. And when I look at some of the people who get elected chair of the CBC, I don't know what that's based on. Because I look at the condition of your district, I I can tell it's not based on you being an effective politician, being able to deliver for your constituents. And the only reason I raise that, because there's some discussion now about how the CBC is not necessarily about Black people, but has a more general, inclusive kind of of core value i'm gonna call it as so richard, as- let, me, let me say richard I, I you will never hear me use the phrase people of color you will never hear me use this phrase bipoc black indigenous mm-hmm. people of color we got to be careful with that terminology because we've diluted and i tell my mexican brothers and sisters in texas quit saying people of color say mexican you know because i use the word black and i think it's something powerful in that but i think you know we have diluted our own institutions richard we mm-hmm. moved away from being black, I'll give you one example. I do a lot in the realm of sports. I remember when the Black Coaches Association was a dynamic organization run by John Thompson, Dick, uh, your boy, John Chaney out mm-hmm. of Temple, 
George Raveling, but guess what? They wanted to get new school and they 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 wanted to be all inclusive. And so right now the, the the organization is defunct. So the question is, why do we feel like we always have to have a big a big tent and bring everybody else in? Mm. Well, Professor Moore, I, 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 you know, that kind of goes to what I was mentioning a minute ago. Yeah. Those narratives don't come from us. Mm. They come from other people. And the people that you're talking about that's in leadership mm. parrot those things. Uh, yeah. People yeah. of color. I, you, I hear so many black people talking about people of color. Just say black. You don't want to say black, but they say people of color. They use all types of uh, colorful narratives that don't really point to you. Those, brother, look, go ahead. Here's what I ask him. I say, when you say people of color, does the brother down the street from me from India, is he included in that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, is the, is the sister from Japan, is she included in that group? But we got to stop, you know, we got to stop. Um, and it is, and it is a, a political delusion, you know, in that. Let me, yes. let me go to, uh, let's get, let's go to Newport news, Newport news. I, I was just trying to tell you in the chat, uh, Brother Moore, I already covered that. I was going to ask him how he thought about that BIPOC and POC. But I'll throw back to another one because I haven't read your book, but I'm going to get it. Did you include uh, Brother Roy Ennis in any of your analysis on, on this? Absolutely. Yeah. He brought the one who raised the busing issue. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I asked is because I was interested in what you thought about him, what little I know about him. It seems like to me, once the personal tragedy of losing two sons in uh, what they call black-on-black crime, it seems like to me that personal experience changed him a lot. I, I don't know for sure how you covered him, but I'm going to get your book and find out. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't follow him much beyond the, beyond the convention itself. Okay, thank you. All right. Yes, sir. Hey, Brother Moore, do you think that there that there is a possibility in this moment, this political climate, to have a seventy two convention, political black political convention? Let me say this, then I answer your question. I, this summer, I taught a, a black history class with like two thousand people, mostly white. All right, talk about everything. So anyway, at the end of the last class, they asked me my thoughts on. The presidential election. Here's what I said, and I may lose some of y'all, but I don't care. I said, if black people were strictly looking out for themselves, it may be better for us if Trump stayed in office. All right? Now, all those white liberals went crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They went crazy. They said, how dare he say something like that? You know what I'm saying? And I said, you know, and so at some point, Black people's got to look out for black folk. But I think if we were to have a meeting now, Brother Richard, we would encounter the same situation. Mm. People coming to the gathering, but being controlled by outside organizations. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, I, I, I see that. And and that is what we have to figure out. I what? mean, the Pan-Africans, the nationalists, those who are, you know, um, you know, whether they're, as you say, the middle class who are, truly looking out for the interests of black people because they can the material condition and this COVID really showed it the material condition is not getting going to get better no and and i I told my students the white man does not have enough jobs for himself Mm -hmm. professor moore uh, i want to go into a couple more things and uh we got a couple other callers that jumped on we're gonna take a brief break um 
let's 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 uh, let's try this. You have because you mentioned earlier, in almost when the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned the political figure, and I forgot what state he was from. Mentioned that he's uh, he's been mayor and he's been voted on by thousands of black folks, and that Baraka and others in the organization they might have forty people. Now it's clear that if black people develop a strategy, and this this is nothing new that they can take control politically of areas where they are the majority of the population and funnel uh, public funds that are generated from the tax base of those areas to change the dynamic of their communities. It's clear that they can do that. And the white power structure knows that you can do that. So it's two ways they attack it. Because sometimes they play chess, and some of our people right. are caught playing checkers. There's two ways that they do that, to my estimation. I'll throw it out. Maybe you, Richard, got some others, or maybe I'm wrong. Uh, they find slick ways to stop you from voting or hinder your vote or redistrict areas. And, and they develop people. So they cover both bases. Mm, they'll de- yeah. they'll cultivate people among your communities that they would like to see in office. <laughs> and then they cover the other base by trying to stop you from voting. Because, for right. example, if I rise up and have uh, the Brother Richard party, and I run for office in Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. a city that's 80% black, right. I'm known in the community, I'm an activist, and I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, it's a good chance that uh, that I will win that seat. Okay. And if I have the mindset to help, really help the community, then I can use the tax-based money that's generated to start changing the reality of black life in these cities. That is a no-no for the political establishment. They don't. We got a sister running in Cleveland right now for Congress. Her name is Nina Turner. You've seen her on MSNBC. Bad sister. I went to grad school with her. Big time activist. You know, Marsha Fudge, uh, who was chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. You know, she was a congresswoman from Cleveland. Uh, I think she's got appointed to a cabinet position. Yes. And so in my mind, again, I'm in Texas. I'm like, oh, this is Nina Turner's seat, hands down. No. Nah. The Democratic Party establishment, which are a lot of black folk in, went and got this other sister who they're putting up, who has become the establishment candidate. And what they're saying now is that Nina Turner's having a hard time raising money because all these other people have anointed, you know, they've anointed this one sister who doesn't have the track record of Nina Turner by far. Um, but but let me say this, brother. You mentioned that you talked about Havel, uh, voter suppression. You said that, and you said they all run their own people and put them, up, put them in office. Here's what they do before the election, brother. If when they see that these cities about to return, become majority black, here's what they did. They attempted to privatize all the assets, Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, sanitation, waste removal, the water. And just a year ago in the city of Atlanta, we know Atlanta's greatest asset is the airport. The state of the state of um, Ohio, I mean, the state of Georgia talked about. Taking the, you know, you know, state of Georgia talking about taking the airport away from the city of Atlanta and making it run by the state. 
And so you're right, brother, that they're often playing checkers while we are while we are playing chess. Uh, so the brother Otis saying that Nina Turner's not progressive, is that it? Is that it, uh, Otis? <laughs> let, me, let me bring him back on. Okay. <laughs> brother. <laughs> oh, no. What I'm saying is the one that's funding is not progressive. Oh, they absolutely. don't want exactly. You know, you know why, brother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you say, let's get this right. <laughs> yeah, right. You must know something I don't know. Oh, boy. Well, let's take a brief, another brief break. When we come back, we got a couple calls that jumped on and we'll uh, we'll deal with them right after the break. Uh, we're in conversation this evening. Oh, boy. We're in conversation this evening with author, activist, and professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Leonard and Moore. The book, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 1972. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, 
abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. message to the black man because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock nobody takes the black man serious we're just used to be somebody's tool we are the sportsmen we're the singers and the dancers and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you.
How are you, Judge? How are you, Alderman? <laughs> How are you, Congressman? How are you? How are you, Reverend? <laughs> well, what can I do for you today, Reverend? You can't do nothing for me. See, that's what we got to be careful of. We got to be careful of who we bow down to. But see, when you get in your congregation and you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand, then you go with your hat in your hand to the government, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown disrespect all of us. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 9 o'clock straight up in the city of Philadelphia, and we're on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, author, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Leonard N. Moore, the book, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, in the National Black Political Convention of 1972. Uh, we got about 15 more minutes with our guests, and you can squeeze in here and ask the question, get involved in the conversation. You can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. We got uh, one guest up here. I'm going to get him on in a second. Professor Moore, you still there? You still with us? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let me say this before I go to our caller. Um Professor Henderson called up earlier, Earl Henderson out of uh, Penn State University, and said that he had a problem with the, t- at the title of the book. And uh, I think the book is interesting, and I recommend that our, our listening audience get the book and look at it, study it, because in it is the problems that we face and a blueprint on how to that we can deal with this in the future. But uh, one of the things, the, the, when you title it the defeat of black power, I think we might have lost that particular battle, mm. but we're not going to lose the war. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we can learn from uh, the mistakes that those men did, uh, even, they were, even though their intentions were, were good and they wanted to help our people. But it, let me throw this out there before I go to our caller. I see that that same thing was repeated in the early 90s. The Black Caucus reached out, and along with other black leadership, they reached out and and, uh, developed a sacred covenant Mm -hmm. with the Nation of Islam and other groups. Because just like I was saying before, it's necessary. The family of our people that splintered needs to talk Right. They they reached a sacred covenant, and everybody knows what the word sacred means because, like I said before, when men gave their word in 72 and then turn around and betrayed their word, that, yeah. that says the character, that speaks to the character of some folks. But they reached a sacred covenant in 72, and then 
That was in September. In October, some of the same black leadership, according to published reports, went out uh, and canvassed different cities to urban gangs, telling them that they were the new frontier civil rights leaders. But by January of that next year, which was only about four or five months later, uh, they denounced uh, what they were trying to do, basically trashed the sacred covenant, uh, trashed any affiliation with the Nation of Islam, and that movement to try to unify was thwarted again with the same parties, ironically, that was involved in uh, the demise of the 72 convention. Only thing, this was different because you had a bipartisan political effort along with other uh, uh, Anglo and religious organizations. You had Democrats and Republicans. I think uh, Kennedy was involved. You, I mean, it was a concerted uh, full-court press to make sure that something like that won't happen. And all you're talking about is black people becoming unified with a voice. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that that's dangerous to the society that we live in. Um, before you respond, you can reply or I can go to the next call for the time we have left. Go ahead. Go to the next call. Okay, go ahead. Let's go to 646 in New York. 646? 646? Yeah. Yes, Brother Richard, Elliot, and to your guest. Man, you know, it's a... You got your volume. Your volume is up. Your volume is up. Your volume is up in the background. Can you turn? Because it's causing a little interference. Yeah, I turned it off. Good. Okay. It's a very beautiful discussion that that you're having but you know my my question is this it's been over let's say 50 years and out of those brothers that was at that um convention it seems like some of them went on to do quite well but on the collective like i said friday night Black people in this country are nothing but condoms. That's all. We we haven't achieved anything, let's be honest, in this country that place us in a position to demand power in this country that white folks don't control mm. and can't take away from us at the drop of the hat. Mm. I'll give you a perfect example. New York City. They elected 20-some years ago Mayor David Dinkins. What happened to David Dinkins? The Jew got rid of his black behind and put in basically a goddamn racist that went on and became the Martin template for Donald Trump. Now, my brother said earlier that we should have accepted Donald Trump in that position again, and the liberals in the class went nuts. You want to know why they went nuts? Because whenever a liberal is in office, that's the white man, the black man is beckoned to his behind. Mm, He doesn't give him nothing. He tells him that he's going to give him something, and then when it's time to give him something, he don't give him nothing, a.k.a the John Lewis bill that is essential for their dumbasses to stay in power. So in all essence, we in bad shape, but you know, we got to romanticize this. We got to make black people like Holly Berry said, feel good. 
So the reality is, as long as we're trying to feel good, we're just going to be a condom. Use you to protect their interests, and when they get finished, they just throw it away, and when they need to put a new one on, they put a new one on for protection. And that's what the Negro is. Protection to the white man's continual growth mm. into, as one would say, whiteness. Wow. Well, brother, brother, that's heavy. And I remember after the Trump election, you would have thought it was a holiday in black America after the Biden election. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, when uh when the two when when the brother Warnock wins the Senate seat in Georgia and the other Democratic guy wins the center seat, uh center seat. Man, shoot, you thought it was like Juneteenth around here. And, but aren't and, they now showing you? Aren't yes. they now showing you and showing us that right. we're not going to get nothing basically nothing. for putting them bastards in office in a position? And what is it? One white man who they won't even crush, who they can crush if they really needed to crush, they allow him to dictate the terms. Mm. of how our existence is. It's madness. And we just go along with it. So when it's all said and done, now let's be very clear, come February of next year, they're going to come back to us with about, we got to make sure that Warnock is reelected and Democrats (laughs) keep control and blah, blah, blah. And you know what I would tell them? F you. If the John Lewis bill don't get passed, right. I would tell him F you. Right. That's good, man. Because that's <laughs> our reality. The only way we would have a chance, let's be very clear, the only way we will have a chance in a very small and slim chance is if the John Lewis get bill get passed so that they won't be able to do their voter suppression on mm. the level that they do. Because, see, the Negro feels that if they take it to the courts, the courts is go side with their black behind. But the court is rigged now for a 6-3. And mm. they did it with the honest of an idiot like Trump being elected, giving them what, he, what they wanted, and then they used him. And now they got rid of him so that evil could prevail. And you know what evil is? Evil is is when you can go into the court at any given time and restrict people and being able to have just a little bit. But here it is, those that you done protected and put in office ain't gonna give you nothing or help you get anything. But then they gonna come back to you saying, I tried. I try. You know what black people are? They're like a battered woman. That's all black people are, are a battered woman in a condom. Because, <laughs> I mean, we we don't realize that, you know, you ever see the person that beats his wife? We don't like it. We don't appreciate it. But he beats his wife and he continues to beat his wife till eventually somebody puts an end to it, either her or because from 19, let's, we could use 1972 as an example, it has evolved to the point where you can't beat your wife no more without being punished for it. But we allowed the Democratic Party and the others to beat us and continuously get away with it. 
Look, man, I love black people more than anything in the world. The greatest thing in the world is being an African. But the one thing we got to realize is that we are in an abusive, sick, twisted relationship with these white folks. And we got to get off the tent. Yeah, we're going to suffer for a while. But if we do what we're supposed to do, maybe we'll survive. Because this ain't getting no better, bro. This ain't getting no better. It's getting worse. And we don't realize that it's getting worse. I mean, just look at what's happening with this pandemic and the lives of black people that ain't even really being discussed. This evening, they had a, a program on 60 Minutes showing white folks in Ohio suffering. Do you know what that image is? But do you ever see an image of black people suffering on the level that white folks are suffering that's way worse? No, they don't show that image. So, I mean, Brother Moore, I appreciate what you wrote. I appreciate think what you. you're doing is great. But I tell you this, man, we got to be more critical of these so-called black leaders that we have. Because let me tell you something. I watch them and I look at them. Those that are in politics, that push that politics, like dangerous people, like Roland Martin. And I mean, mm. I get what Roland about, Roland about getting paid. But you know something? Most Negroes don't understand it. You got to listen to what people say and what their agenda is. All right. I hope you can work it out. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, bro. Professor Moore. Yes, sir. Listen, it was good having you on. Talk about the book. This is fun, man. Tom, the two hours kind of flew by. Yes, it did, man. But this, hey, but I, but I thank you for. Uh, I really, I was playing around with your website, man. I really like the platform you got built out, and I tell my students all the time, you know, we need more independent black media. So appreciate you, brother. And the Grio and the Root, those are not independent. Those are not independent black media outlets. <laughs> Hey, listen, uh, I enjoyed the conversation tonight. I think more of these type of conversations have to be had. Yes, sir. Because we can't we can't just dismiss family. Uh, That's right. That's we, right. We, we got to give people the opportunity to, to hear issues and change their mind or keep their own same mindset. But people right. have, the, the issue has to be in front of them so they can, they yes, can make sir. an informed decision. Sir. Uh Happy to have you with us, and we'll we'll talk again soon. Uh, is, yes, is, is anything on the horizon? Any new books? Any uh, papers coming out? Yeah, what? Well, coming out in the fall is called um, uh, it's called uh, teaching Black History to White People. Okay, and that uh, when is that coming out? In the fall. <laughs> it's, it's somewhat autobiographical, but um, uh, you know, but you know, I teach a thousand students every semester, every fall semester, and about half of those students are white. So it's just about, man, and then also, you know, speaking to these, it's all, it's about, man, how the power of black history has the ability to change mentalities. Okay. All right. Listen, we'll talk soon. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. right. Uh, Listening audience, uh, that was our guest this evening. We're going to have an early exit tonight. Um, But before we leave, let me give you the lineup. Time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, 
and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting conversation and dialogue on African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. That's one eight, uh, that's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. From 6 to 8 later on uh, Monday evening, Acres of Diamonds with Brother Jihad Ahmed. And from 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Mawia Kambai. Uh, and from 9 to 10, Conversation Reparations. I think they'll be having a new host soon. Um, Got to get in touch with the, the old host and see exactly what's going on. But uh, the time is still blocked out for them the first and third Monday of every month, uh, 9 to 10 p.m. Conversation Reparations. On Tuesday, 8 to 10, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers on t- on Friday, 8 to until time for An Awakening is Back. That's from 8 till on Friday evenings. And then on Saturday from 4 to 6 p.m., Black Sister Talk with host Luanda Chambers. And from 7 to 9 p.m., the elders of Sankofa with host Brother Alfonso Watkins. And then Sunday evening from 7 until time for An Awakening is back. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Children playing after school. They seem to be so unaware. I know, I know the things that they'll soon have to take care of.
Children. 